0: Episode Five. Hello, Phil Ryan here again, and I'd like to welcome, you, as always, to the Story Hive podcast. As a writer, I, I've always thought that listening to a short story is just a brilliant way to relax in a busy day, and I don't know, just gives you a short break. And that's why the Story Hive is the home of amazing audio stories, as we say. And so, in this week's podcast, you get, as per normal, three short fiction stories to entertain and hopefully amaze you. They always run at 20 minutes or less so they're absolutely ideal for a quick break from your day now we do have to run some small adverts soon just between the stories just to make sure that we can deliver these to you for absolutely free but that's not important because without further ado here's our first story from today's three-story collection and we're hoping it's going to start you off with a smile and it's called the shop happy listening The shop wasn't easy to see. It almost blended into the small corner, sitting as it did at a strange angle. Maria was killing time. She knew it. Her next viewing had been cancelled. And the flat in Green Street, well, it was a tidy conversion nobody really wanted. Ugh, now she had an hour to fill. Harlcourt place up after that. Miss Grey or somebody. It just was pointless going back to the office. Plus, she couldn't face seeing Grant. She knew she'd get nervous, silly. She couldn't help herself. He was gorgeous. Not that he'd ever really ever noticed her. She sighed. Grant, tall, blonde, athletic. (gasps) He'd only started two months back. Everyone fancied him. He'd heard them giggling by the coffee machine, talking about him. And she really wished she had the courage. But she knew she didn't. She sighed heavily. If only. And she briefly pictured him. Behind her, a van reversed and beeped and she stepped up onto the pavement to avoid it. She'd never really noticed this street before. In fact, as she wandered along, she realised she really made it to this part of town. It was nice in a run-down kind of way, eclectic, older buildings, bit of a mix. But she preferred the Collingbrook part, the new town area with the big shopping centre. But she had to admit that little fruit and flower market she'd just passed, well, that looked quite cute. Maybe she'd pick up some roses for Mum on the way back. But then she saw it. Out the corner of her eyes. The shop. It was up an alleyway, a a cul-de-sac, the windows glinting in the morning sunlight, way up at the far end. But if she hadn't have stepped to avoid the reversing van, she'd never have seen it. It was an odd position. And slowly she wandered up, noting in passing a wool shop an old-fashioned cobblers and art supply place with a huge picture of a poppy in the window. And then she stopped. The shop front looked nice, clearly hand-painted, bright colours, stars and moons, rainbows. It looked pretty interesting, alternative, her mum would have said. The front window crammed with unusual-looking bottles and jars and pots, seemingly haphazardly placed in piles, brightly coloured and beribboned. She glanced at her watch. Yeah, there were ages before her next appointment. Yeah, why not? Maybe they had some nice shampoo, even conditioner. She was getting low, she remembered that. And the door tinkled merrily as she pushed it open, a tiny bell pinging away. In fact, it played a small melody she half remembered, which made her smile, and from the outside it looked gloomy. However, as she crossed the threshold, she found herself in a huge, bright, airy space, Lit by a soft golden glow, it came from hundreds of tiny lights, twinkling like stars in the ceiling. The whole effect was very calming, very lovely. And at the far end, a lady was sitting by a counter, knitting or doing something with some silver-looking yarn, and she was lost in concentration. And Maria stood, uncertain at first, should she go in? But then the lady looked up and smiled. Can I help you, my love? Her voice, soft and friendly. Maria was always thrown where this happened. Her shyness always an issue, and she stammered. She, 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 she was just looking, thanks, and she put her head down quickly. It seemed a nice place, but the shelves, they seemed to have no order whatsoever. Different rows of bottles and jars, in every size imaginable. But there didn't seem to be any signs, saying which section was what, just pictures. And she picked up a pretty-looking crystal jar. There was a picture of a strawberry on its front, and a label that read Moon Strawberries for Dreaming. She put it back. Moon strawberries for dreaming? That sounded odd. Then she started reading some labels. They were amazing, strange. There were three bottles of what seemed to be called height enhancer. There was a picture of two people next to each other, one much taller. Then there were some fat green pots calling themselves lie detector. She smiled to herself. Ah, they were obviously that kind of jokey thing. But still, it was a nice place for alternative gift shop. You know, fun stuff, presents. And still it smelled nice, perfume, pleasant, but it seemed familiar. She looked at the lady behind the counter, who now appeared to be lifting up what looked like a silver fishing net. It was four feet across. bit unusual thought, Maria. didn't look much like a jumper. And then she lifted her eyes. Because behind her, on the wall, a large sign read, all our products are made with fully unnatural ingredients. Which threw Maria briefly. Unnatural ingredients? Wasn't it supposed to be natural ingredients? The lady caught her eye again. Looking for anything in particular, love? Her voice again, so pleasant. But Maria let out a tiny whisper. She was still still looking, thanks. When behind her, the front door tinkled as another customer came in. And this time the little bell seemed to play a different tune. Huh, that seemed a bit odd. It was a nursery rhyme, Maria thought, but she couldn't be sure. But she felt she knew it. Maria moved behind a tall display. The new customer was an old man, smartly dressed, a crisp, trilby hat on his head. He looked a little out of place, she felt. Not the sort of person you'd find in a shop like this. And behind the counter, the lady had put her odd knitting thing down, and she came out from behind it, moving towards the old man. Well, she's very graceful, Maria thought. The woman was tall and slender, her hair a pure black, the sheen actually catching the light. It was beautiful. Maria couldn't help herself now. She felt a bit nosy, and she moved closer, now hidden behind the display. The old man now spoke, his voice shaky, and he seemed a little upset, and the lady had wrapped him in a big hug. She stepped back. Oh, Charlie, love, is she bad again? And the old man nodded, and she smiled brightly. It's so difficult, Desiree, he quietly said. She didn't recognise Kath this morning... Her own daughter, Desiree. She didn't recognise her. The lady made a tusk sound and she nodded, patting him gently on the shoulder. She thought for a second and then she reached back to the counter and lifted up a tall jar. That was weird. It almost looked like it was glowing, thought Maria. Although it was probably a trick of the light. Well, Charlie, love, let's try her on these. And then she picked up a small dark bottle and... Yeah, this. This was very good last time. He smiled, nodding emphatically his lined face now softened oh yeah that stuff was great what's this he held up the jar and the lady produced some half moon spectacle she had around her neck on a fine chain and she read aloud uh denton's finest forget me not juice and baby laughter pastels they're very good these charlie just give it to her you know like it says on the label yeah the old man nodded again and his face now seemed happier and the lady went back behind the counter, wrapping his purchases into some bright tissue paper. He smiled, reached out, and stroked her cheek, and then paid. And Maria guiltily turned back. Oh no, that's that you know, shouldn't be staring. But forget-me-not juice and babies' laughter pastels. What kind of shop was this? It was obviously joking fun, but the old man had sounded very sad. Maria stood there. This was really confusing. Behind her, the door opened and tinkled again, and two middle-aged women came in, the bell again playing a different tune, a little melody that Maria swore she'd heard before. This was odd. And then both the women said hello to the lady, Desiree, before disappearing, giggling behind a far-off shelf sectioning in the next aisle. There was a sign above it which had a picture of two people kissing, and Maria's handbag suddenly buzzed, her phone alert. Great. Oh, now the 1.30 was running two hours late. Oh, this is crazy. She couldn't stay in the shop. She'd just have to leave now, go back to the office. There was tons of email she had to clear up. Oh, God, she just didn't want to hang around in town for that long. And she briefly agonised with herself. Oh, God, going back. Grant would be there in the office, his new office next to hers. (sighs) She knew she could never talk to him without blushing. And she hated herself for it. When suddenly behind her, the shop lady appeared. You sure I can't help you, dear? Maria was a bit thrown, and before she could stop herself, she said, Well, it's my shampoo and conditioner. I've nearly run out, but um, it's all right. The lady smiled. Well, don't worry, that's over here, my love. As she turned, Maria shyly followed her along the next aisle. The shop seemed very big, she thought. Bigger than ever. And the lady looked at Maria critically. Well, I think these are the best type for your hair, love. Oh, by the way, your hair's lovely. Maria felt her face redden, and she knew the lady generally meant it, but still, and she stammered a thank you. The lady now put two beautiful glass bottles into Maria's hands, both a lovely shimmering blue. But the labels looked homemade, the writing clearly in someone's handwriting. One said, inner beauty enhancer and smiles, and the other, princess silken tresses and sunbeams. And the lady caught her expression, Oh, yes, don't worry, they're made, they're local, they're very good. Maria was flustered. Was this serious locally made shampoo? That sounded expensive, and the names were strange too. Silken tresses and sunbeams, what did that mean? And her shyness made her face blush bright red again. Oh, no. But then she just nodded and followed the lady back to the counter. She didn't know what to do. She didn't want to refuse or dare ask the price. She knew she should have. She knew that. And that was silly. But she knew herself. A quiet girl, her mum told people. Kind. Sensitive. The lady smiled and wrapped the bottles. Uh, That'll be £4.50, love. Maria was thrown. For two? That seemed very cheap. The bottles looked like they'd cost more. But now she was just totally confused and she didn't know what to do. "'Smilingly, the lady held out a little card, "'had a series of stars printed onto it. "'Loyalty card, love? Six stars stamped. "'You get a free product, yes?' "'Maria nodded mutely, taking it and slipping it into her handbag. "'She knew she'd never come back here. "'The whole place unsettled her. "'This wasn't a kind of shop for her.' "'And then the lady carefully stamped "'one of the stars with a golden circle. "'Next to her elbow sat a pile of chocolate boxes, "'brightly striped with a red satin bow.' And the lady smiled again and held up a plate. Here you go. Had some small chocolates on it. Please try one, my love, she said, popping one into her mouth. They're freshly made. They will surprise you. Really, they will. Maria could see a sign on them, and it said, Chocolate Confidence. Confidence, she thought, (laughs) if only. But the lady indicated that Maria should pick one up, and hesitant she did so, putting it into her mouth. This was odd she couldn't taste anything at all nothing at all that was a relief she felt they could have been horrible and now politely mumbling very yes very nice thank you and she fumbled in her purse and then almost gratefully left the shop it wasn't a place for her it was just too strange and suddenly her phone rang and now it was a new viewing great she thought happy at the work distraction and she agreed to that and headed back to her car but all the way she felt that place, the shop, it was it was so nice but so unsettling. And the lady, she was kind. There was the little doorbell and the perfume smell. But she pushed it from her thoughts. Now work calling. The traffic was light, but all the way back she couldn't stop thinking about the shop. Until eventually she pulled around the back of the office. Yeah, what a weird place she thought. Something off, but still nice. Ah, no, not her place. The lady had obviously been kind, but yeah, not for her. But now it's time for work. She was good at her job, everyone said so. She'd been there for three years, and then someone called her name, and she glanced up. It was Alan from marketing, holding the door open, and she sped up. But then, as she stepped in the foyer, she nearly fell straight into Grant, who was coming out of his small conference room and her face began to flush, and she felt her heart start to pound. But then it stopped and slowed. Her mouth suddenly tingled, and a lightness filled her head. A sudden burst of chocolate flooded her taste buds. And she looked at him as Grant smiled and started to apologise, when she heard herself saying, "Ah, ''Don't be silly, Grant. You're just eager to work more, I can tell.'' causing him to break out into a laugh and a bright smile. And then she carried on. Look, I don't know about you, but I could murder a coffee from Davison's. Let's let's go now. Yeah, I've got an hour. Do you want to come? She winked and he laughed again. Now that's a great idea. I'll just go and get my jacket. And she stood back as he almost half-jogged back to his office. Maria's head still felt light. The chocolate taste now rich and creamier on her tongue. The shop suddenly brightened her head. And then Grant reappeared and Maria took his arm. I'll drive. And Grant said that would be great and gave her another big thumbs up. Mum later told people how beautiful Maria had looked at the wedding and how handsome Grant had been. And later after the reception she'd noted that Maria had six stamped loyalty cards in her handbag. The upstairs bathroom full of lovely products. The baby was going to be called Desiree, which everybody thought was lovely. And plus, Marie had got a new job, working part-time in a local shop. Well, I wish I could find that shop. Anyway, on we go, and here comes the second story. And this one's called The Marrow. And as per normal, a quick spoiler alert for you, some people's past can catch up with him in a very unexpected way. Now I don't like con men, I don't like all criminals, but con men sometimes really particularly get my goat. They target the vulnerable, all too often the elderly, and they get away with it a lot. And the simple fact is behind all that, is people feel ashamed, stupid, of being taken in so easily. And all con men and con women, they're all alike. Remember, it's not exclusive and you can rely on that. And rarely, rarely do big cases ever come to light. And the same, sadly, goes for the small cases. Again, embarrassment, stupidity. No one wants to be looking daft. But just once in a while, one does come along. And it crossed my desk. And that's why I thought you should hear. And I've got to pause here because it's Phil's presence again. A story I like to call The Marrow. Spain has a large coastline. It's a holiday magnet. And where there's people on holiday, there are criminals not on holiday. People in the travel and police community, well, we've got an expression. And it's called brains on the runway syndrome. It is, in effect, a thing that says as soon as people land in a holiday destination, they leave their brains and their thinking on the runways, and they just do silly things. Dangerous things, foolish things. They leave bags unattended. They ride camels, and they fly paragliders behind speedboats. In other words, they don't always think everything through. And they behave very differently to the way they are at home. Now, this was the case with Miss Stephanie Clayton of Billericay, Essex. Now, Stephanie, poor love, was not having the time she'd hoped. Her bag had been stolen, she'd fallen off a camel on the beach and she'd bruised her buttocks rather badly and then she'd been dragged across the bay by a speedboat after a paraglider had abruptly collapsed. Now, she was a lovely girl. She'd been with her friends Stacey and Karen and neither of whom seemed to be having any misfortunes of their own but they very nicely commiserated with her after each unfortunate event. And so, by all accounts, Stephanie was a light and very lovely girl. Kind. But, and here's the but, unlucky in love. And that is where the main character in this story comes in. Raymond Henry Stevens, or Raymond White, or Raymond Featherwick. These are just some of the names this charming piece of flotsam and jetsam used. His particular skill? Fleecing the lonely. And something, even when I just say it, makes me really angry about it. You see, like other scum of his type, he would find his victims while they were abroad and he would play the lonely bachelor in search of love on holiday. Now, he was a good looking man. His file photo did him justice, despite the obviously sullen expression in the police shop. But his modus operandi, well, that was simple. He would just sit by the pools. He listened to the conversations, always by small groups of women. And then, like any other evil predator, he target the weakest the most vulnerable and in our case that was miss stephanie clayton of billericke essex now the file tells us that young stephanie was a little on the heavy side very self-conscious about it and shy but she wasn't a pushy girl no no not in any way she was a nice girl and then it turned out her last charmingly titled boyfriend had really led her a merry dance and he'd broken the poor girl's heart. He dumped her two weeks before their apparent marriage. Well, this not only shattered her dreams of a married future, but it kind of put paid to what little confidence the poor thing had left. And that resulted in her being single for the past three years. Now, the report I read said she was a lovely girl. She worked as a nursery teacher in a local nursery that was run by her parents. And she came from a good, solid background. Now, I say that as her old man was retired job, as in my job, the police. 40 years service, retired, eventually due to medical grounds. The poor sod getting a knife in the arm during a street robbery. But he was a solid man, a good man, impeccable service career, long-time sergeant. And to be honest, that was probably what piqued my attention when the case crossed my radar. Now, back to our little charmer, on this occasion calling himself Raymond White. He'd identified poor Stephanie for his con and off he went. And low lives like him, following a depressing and very familiar pattern. First, accidentally, he met his victim, in his case, bumping into her. His drink going all over his white then in trousers and she felt very embarrassed. Then a conversation began and then off he went blah 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 and by the next day he'd arranged to meet her for lunch and now his pursuit of his prey began and it ended up as these cons always did him now supposedly madly in love with her and then around three months later back in England he turned up with a very familiar story you see poor Stephanie was no different he's used it on loads of women countless times and tragically it always worked And that's love for you. The story involved him suddenly needing some urgent money for an amazing business deal that he could share. And he'd split the huge profit with her if only he could find an investor from somewhere. And it was such a sure thing. And of course, Stephanie fell for it. But this is how he played it. She'd offer him money and he'd refuse. Clever, yeah? Because she'd offer it again and he'd refuse. But then, finally, and reluctantly, he'd accept, and now the twist come, because of course it had to be in cash, and in Stephanie's case, she'd handed over fifteen thousand pound, fifteen grand, all the poor girl's savings, and of course our charming scumbag then did his vanishing act. Now, of course, the girl was embarrassed and ashamed to tell anyone. But her mum winkled it out of her and she told her husband, who of course told us. Now we of course struggled to assist and her dad knew that. See the fact was she'd given him the money. He hadn't pressurised her or forced her in any way. And that gave us very little we could charge him with even if we could find him. You see in those scumbags eyes it's the perfect crime. But our old man, he just wanted to get this bloke into our system full description, MO, etc. But of course, there were no photos available. He was a clever bugger. He covered his tracks very well. Every shot of them together had him in a hat, or dark glasses, or just tucked behind her. Never a real positive image we could ID very well. You see, guys like him adopt all these things. They change their looks, different hair, moustaches, beards, glasses, you name it. They are clever buggers. But then... His cover story, well, that was crazy, but sort of exotic. Of course, he tells Stephanie he works for the government, hence him being away a lot, explaining his constant tan. Now, to start with, of course, he took her to some nice places. He gave her some trinkets in gold, all turning out to be fake naturally. And Mr White, the name he was using, was very good, if you can call it that, because then he literally vanished. It could have been anywhere which in fact he was, up to a point. And in fact, he was in Newcastle, to be precise, not Spain, some out of a suburb, his family running, as we later found out, a greasy spoon calf with his Greek wife, Maria. Now, nearly every criminal, and especially con men I've ever come across, they think they're smart or untouchable. And in some cases, I have to confess, I've encountered a few who really are, but... In the main, they all seem to make one or two little mistakes. And even just the one, and then I can get them. But in this case, our files were completely and utterly empty. You see, like I said, these predators, they know human psychology very well. No one ever reports them. No one. Well, hardly anyone. There's countless examples, though, of victims trying to reach out on social media. That sometimes yields results. But most of the time, it's the embarrassment factor. No one wants to admit they've been tricked. So, our dear Mr White was apparently clear and free and untouchable, invisible until the marrow turned up. Now, the universe does a thing, and it does it just once in a while, just to help the scales of justice move, just a tiny bit. And it's a truism in my job that most criminals can't help but show off a bit to their mates, their criminal peers, kind of dog-pin-up-a-tree thing, you know, leaving their mark. But in Mr White's case, he didn't show off, he wasn't that stupid. But something so unexpected happened, you almost believe in karma, or if nothing else, the universe, justice and sheer luck. It turned out, Back in Newcastle, Mr White, his wife Maria and two small children had a very substantial allotment and on said allotment they grew a wide range of vegetables used in their own calf the calf being primarily run by Maria and her elderly mother Mr White telling them he was a travelling salesman in high-tech computer systems thus necessitating his regular foreign travel to Spain. Now I have to say He was a tad unusual. See, usually these scumbags are single men and they operate in a constant moving pattern. They don't settle anywhere, obviously, for fear of capture or being recognised. But in our case, for whatever reason, Mr White was in fact married. Now, the police psychologists, they've given these people, remember they can be men or women, all sorts of fancy labels, sociopaths, psychopaths. And they always offer us detailed analysis, careful scientific breakdowns of their personalities, and they create charts and diagrams for us to read. But the one description that's not particularly scientific I like to use is heartless evil bastards, because I think that sums them up very nicely. And Mr White was exactly that. Now, you've got to remember, he had a wife, Maria, two cute little kids, but somehow he was still happy to cheat on her And then, when you think about it, he ruined other people's lives. And his only vague, and I'm stretching this redeeming point, was actually regarding his family, because he returned to them and he took part in their family life. Although, thinking about it, he did criminalise them because he used all the proceeds of his cons to buy them presents and take them on family holidays. You see, we think he worked out, by living in Newcastle, in a quiet suburb, well off the beaten track, and of course carrying out his cons in Spain, that he was way out from anywhere. And yes, of course, he met people when they came back to the UK. But then we noticed they were always way down in the far south of the country. And of course, that meant he could effectively operate under the radar. Most of his victims local to London and surrounding areas. And of course, in his initial chat up, that's what he'd established... Their locations, the fact they weren't travellers, the fact they had no links up north, and of course would never in fact come even close to where he lived. However, as previously mentioned, scum like him liked to show off, but not always in a way you'd first imagine. You see, it turned out that his local allotment regularly ran a competition for best vegetables. And on this particular occasion, the first time ever, he'd taken our dear Mr White to growing a marrow, which turned out to be blooming enormous. And of course, it duly won. And now, this is the key, the universal key. The local newspaper turned up, and they took his picture, alongside his wife and two kids, and they put it under the title, Local Prize Winning Grower. Now, You see, you can plan all you like. We all do. But sometimes the unexpected happens and all our careful planning falls apart. For example, you ever try to arrange a surprise birthday party or get BT or Virgin to come round when they say they will? Exactly. So as far as I can tell, this was the next sequence of events. So stay close and try and keep up. As far as we could make out, a train guard in Newcastle took his local paper to work. Of course, he leaves it on a train seat. He's finished with it. But that train seat and train now travels down to Manchester. And another passenger gets on and sees it. He picks it up, but he sees it to be a local Newcastle paper. So he just leaves it on the seat. And now the next passenger gets on and he reads it, but it's Newcastle, so he too leaves it on the seat. Then another passenger and so on. But now here's the crucial part. The next bloke that gets on decides to do the crossword and he kept it with him until he arrived at London King's Cross. Then, and this is the real kicker, he travels by London Metropolitan Underground Line to Liverpool Street where he leaves the paper on a seat. And now the universe kicks in because only for that newspaper to be picked up by the next passenger who then completes the crossword, which I've got to admit was pretty tricky, but then that newspaper travels unerringly to Billericay in Essex, the hometown of our dear Stephanie, who against all the odds, all the odds, picks up the paper. She flicks through it, marvelling at the cheap house prices up north, until she finally comes across a picture of our dear prize-winning marrow friend. Of course, she immediately calls her dad, he calls us, and then something almost magical happened. Because amazingly, another of Mr White's victims, let's call her Debbie, she had indeed started a social media group trying to track the scumbag down. And of course, Stephanie's dad came across it and alerted us. Now, so diligent and dogly determined was Debbie and completely unashamed at exposing herself, because she was a really amazing girl. She not only found seven other girls, all of whom had fallen for Mr White's creepy charms, she'd actually tracked down and met, and wait for it, a current victim still in contact with our slime bag Lothario. And that was the even more wonderful part in the way, the fact that Debbie was now handily working for us, the police. Because you wouldn't believe it, She worked in the Emergency Telephone Response Centre. Anyway, the team now finally had something to go on. Now we set up one of the most interesting meetings I believe Mr. White had ever attended, courtesy of his currently completely complicit with us, Amarata. She'd invited him to pick up 20,000 pound in cash. She'd finally thought, yes, I'll help him, and of course, he took the bait, so now I want you to picture this next scene. He comes down to a central London-based hotel. We'd chosen it, and we had teams stationed in plain clothes at all the exits and entrances. And the hotel were really brilliant. But anyway, I want you to imagine, try and picture this: Mister White's face when, of course, he enters the said small rear restaurant section to be now faced with a large majority of his past stings, all happily smiling, drinking champagne, all watching as three of my rather larger colleagues gently helped him to the floor, handcuffed him rather roughly, and then dragged him away to loud cheering and clapping and obviously a bit of laughter. Well, of course, on a bit of a sad note, the ladies never got their money back. He'd done all that. But Debbie did make a small and very moving speech in which she said they'd all learned a lesson. And then rather charmingly, all the girls went on to still meet up regularly. In fact, and this is a real kicker, they run a victim support network and they put out alerts on all different social media channels. I even understand there's a book coming out. As for our dear Mr White, well, the wheels of justice are, I'm afraid, long and slow and very complex. However, thanks to some diligent research by Stephanie's dad, member old Bill, he suddenly found a very obscure Spanish law regarding importuning women for money. Well, naturally, we were delighted to inform our Spanish colleagues of Mr White's transgressions. And now he resides, courtesy of an impressively fast extradition order, in a charming, but I have heard, rather rough Spanish prison and one additional fact being his poor wife Maria now leads a carefree life with a reporter from the local newspaper in Newcastle, him turning out to be the rather wealthy proprietor's son, her sad memories of our scumbag husband, aided by the imminent arrival of their new baby. Now, I know I'm being light-hearted here, I don't want to make light of what happened to these girls. It was disgusting and evil, stealing someone's trust like that, damaging an already damaged and fragile heart. I mean, What kind of heartless person have you got to be? However, I'm generally dispassionate about criminals like Mr White. But in this case, he was indeed a tow rag who got everything he deserved. So if there is an end to a story like this, I think it's one thing. Crime doesn't pay. You will be caught. I'm coming after you. Trust me. Well, that was a bit dramatic and hopefully unexpected, but it ended well for everyone. Well, I think so. It's sometimes good to know that not everyone gets away with bad things, yeah. Well, as I said before, writing is a relaxing thing to actually do and listen to, and it even lowers your blood pressure. That's according to the medley experts. So in today's little writing tip, just to start you off again on your own writing journey, I'd like you to consider Setting down your own short story idea, just like the ones you're listening to here. Select a genre, something you like comedy, horror, science fiction, whatever. But don't worry. All I want you to do is just write a synopsis of it, not the whole story, maybe just 200 words. Just see if you can explain a whole story that way with that short amount of words. It's a great and really good fun exercise. Well I'm sad to say we've come to the end of today's podcast but there's one story left and it's called The Photograph and it's based on true events, kind of up to a point. He looked again and this time he turned up the magnification just for precision's sake but it was pretty clear he really didn't need to. The sepia images really gave away their age but these were just cardboard cutouts of fairies placed in some woods The light was flat and unreal and he sat back for photographs they were just really silly fakes obvious to anyone but that wasn't the point his editor had actually given him the story it was to be a whimsical piece he knew that there'd been countless articles at that time and they dissected the whole thing every which way possible and that was well over a 100 years ago in its day it had been a complete sensation the internationally renowned and world-famous author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the man who created Sherlock Holmes. Well, he'd gone to a tiny village in the north of England. Some local children had called him up there. They'd had an old box camera, and they claimed to have taken pictures of fairies in the local woods. And, of course, the newspapers got hold of it. The arrival of the great man of letters incredibly believing them. But Chris laughed to himself. The whole thing was obviously a hoax. OK, they were different times back then, science didn't have all the tools, but he wasn't impressed. Even though photography was still a relatively new thing, considering the later advances, this was obvious. These were fakes. You beg a belief, really. I mean, who the hell believed in fairies? And sitting back, he scanned another piece that he dug out for reference. The night before, he'd actually watched a documentary about it, and then a feature film someone had made with big Hollywood stars in it it was charming his girlfriend Dawn had said lovely and she said she believed in fairies even if he didn't it was very romantic she said and she kissed him but he viewed it a little differently look he said it's complete nonsense I mean what an idea fairies but and this was the problem somehow the editor's wife had read about this article somewhere maybe on the internet he didn't know but then she told her husband his boss And she was the magazine company's owner's daughter. Then she got it into her head. She decided to try her hand at writing. And that had been it. The boss had called him in, told him he had to help his wife. He'd briefed him, warned him and then sent him off on his way. This final meeting now resulting in him being sat inside his boss's house, being given tea by the boss's wife. He looked up and smiled as Mrs Armitage reappeared and she offered a teacup fine bone china two impossibly thin biscuits balancing precariously on the edge of the saucer and she looked at him and smiled her makeup was flawless her clothes expensive The house had to be worth 10 mil if it was worth a penny and Chris thought of their little flat in Walthamstow, with Dawn and himself sitting in their little one-bedroom palace. He had to admit this place was really something. And Mrs Armitage smiled at him. Now, where were we, Christopher? And inwardly he winced. Even his mum didn't call him by his full name. But he thought, just let it go. He remembered Dawn's words. Remember, it's the boss's wife. Play nice. He knew she was right. Journalism was getting tighter year on year. Less jobs and less money. In a way, he was lucky to have the one he did have. And then Mrs Armitage smiled again and produced a top-range laptop and plonked it down in front of him and hit the play button. And then a video started. The quality of the footage clearly placed it around the late 1980s. There was a tall man in Wellington boots standing in a stream in some woods. It looked rather nice, sunshine falling around him. And then the man started talking. I'm standing in some woods just near the village of Cottingley. Now, if you'd have stood here in 1917, some 75 years ago, incredibly, you might have bumped into the creator of Sherlock Holmes himself, the author, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the reason for his visit, highly unusual. You see, he believed that the two local girls, Elsie Wright and Frances Griffiths, who'd written to him, they lived in Cottonly and they'd actually taken some pictures of fairies. He waved his hands around him dramatically. Living here amongst these woods. Then some photographs came up images of fairies and some leaves, one by a tree branch. They looked very stage, the ones Chris had seen earlier. They were very old fashioned, fake looking. Then a second piece of jerky old movie film of a man with a huge moustache and a walking stick standing by a riverbank, captioned Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes. It's incredible to think that this genius, this world-famous writer, could actually believe such a thing and had been so easily hoodwinked. He then paused and looked around him. Now, sadly today, I can't see a single fairy. But here in the village today, on the anniversary of Sir Arthur first coming here all those years ago, some local children have kindly agreed to take their place. And some music started and the camera slowly panned around and there were four small girls in fairy costumes splashing and playing and laughing in the stream. The camera went back to the man's face. This is John Morton for Channel 4 News, Cottingley in the Fairy Woods. Mrs Armitage sat back and smiled. He'd already watched so much of this stuff, but he remembered Dawn's words, and she looked at him and took a sip of water from her glass, her bright red lipstick leaving a tiny half circle on the rim. "'It's so lovely, don't you think, Christopher?' "'And she breathed in slowly. "'You see, I thought we could pop up there, "'interview some locals, perhaps.' "'He nodded enthusiastically. "'Behind her, in a cabinet shelf, he suddenly noticed "'line upon line of porcelain fairy figures. "'They looked pretty expensive, unsurprisingly, "'given their environment. "'Ah, the penny dropped. "'Fairy stuff, He could see it now. "'It was everywhere.' pictures, little china things, cushions. The woman was clearly fairy mad. That was it. It didn't matter at all though because he had to please the boss. He'd been at Global Publishing a year now, general writing, doing what was needed and currently he was attached to three magazines, now all online. The fading desire for printed matter, now just a simple fact of life. Online, that was the world now. And the problem meant there was less work, or at least less interesting work. He remembered his old college tutor's warning. Guys, get somewhere in a big company, lose yourself and keep your head down, and you might just make it. Sadly, present words indeed, as he'd watched three quarters of his own classmates fall away in the first year. He knew that decent paid work in journalism was getting thinner on the ground. But now, he had a little window... All he had to do was help the boss's wife write an article and then he could get back to his normal work. please the boss, maybe even finish his novel. A bit of a dream he always knew, but one he never could let go of. He just had to be nice to Mrs Armitage, and she was a nice lady, so that wasn't very hard. He'd already reviewed everything he could on the subject. Poor old stupid Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. He was a bit mad, really. Public reaction, even at the time, had been mixed. Some said the images were true, others said they were false. But finally, and in no way coming as a surprise to him, it then turned out that in the early 1980s, before they died, both the children, now both old ladies, Elsie and Francis, had actually admitted the photographs had been faked, using, as he knew, cardboard cutout fairies copied from a popular children's book of the time. They'd obviously loved the attention... And as far as you could tell, they'd also made a fair bit of money at the time, both coming from very poor families. But there was one odd note. And even though the whole thing had been exposed as a sham, just before she passed, Frances, who'd been 97, had gone on to fervently maintain that the fifth and final photograph of the fairies was actually genuine. Madness. Probably some old woman. But still, Chris thought, it'd be nice to give the International Metal Exchange a rest for a blooming time yeah it paid the bills but oh my god he just wanted to write something good and he remembered dawn's face that morning over breakfast and she said this could be a ticket upwards if you play it right and he knew dawn was always right it was a lovely day and the motorway was surprisingly empty the sun bright the sky a pale blue and the rain now had passed and almost silently Chris sat as the brand new top-spec Range Rover hummed along. Incredibly, Mrs Armitage had decided they should drive up north all the way to Bradford from London. Her, of course, not actually doing the driving. That being left to a man in a suit called Phil. And Chris looked around the car, the luxurious cream interior, and then noticed the sign for Cottonley just going past. They'd agreed a plan already. A rough structure for the piece. Of course, he'd kind of pushed her in the direction he wanted it to go. He'd said, what about a different angle? And he'd made some inquiries, calling ahead. So first, they were going to chat to a Mrs. Winifred Spears, who hadn't actually been born when the girls had made their apparent fairy discovery, but she was now a resident in a small care home. And he'd got hold of the local newspaper reporter, who said this woman had saved the fairy woods. And that was the angle. Mrs Armitage had loved it. She'd said it was a really lovely take on a very old story. And he knew that would please the boss as well. And much to his relief, on the way up in the drive, she'd also told him she knew it was just a hoax. The pictures were obviously fake and there were no such thing as fairies. <laughs> he thought at least her fairy thing was just that. Just like a hobby. And then they'd visited the woods. Just 30 minutes past. That had been their first port of call, obviously. They both stood in the stream, visited the place the pictures had been taken, and he'd taken some shots of Mrs Armitage he knew the boss would like. It had been really nice there, green and peaceful, sunny and pleasant, such a change from bustling London. And he sighed to himself, to be honest, anything was better than another day at his desk waxing lyrical about some new design in yachts or the wonderful world of metal markets. Now they were inside the care home, and Mrs Spears, Winifred, fully living up to her reputation, and Mrs Armitage absolutely loved her. She was a sprightly old thing, Chris thought, 97 years old, 97, but still seemingly sharp as a tack. It had turned out that the Cottonly Woods had been under threat from a development at one point, and she'd saved them, that was the original story. She'd campaigned and raised money, she'd even been arrested twice, but finally she'd won, she said, with a little brittle laugh. And Chris had already given the whole story to Mrs Armitage a few days earlier and he knew she'd love it. It was a great angle. And in a way, he couldn't be blamed if the whole thing went wrong, if the article tanked. It was actually Mrs Armitage who was writing the article. He was just helping and he tried to kind of make that clear to the boss. After all, he'd gone on to tell him it was her bar line on it and her picture with her premarital name, the On Lucinda Headingley Mason. But whatever happened, Chris still felt it could be a good article and all he had to do was keep his head down and be as helpful as he possibly could. Fairy Woods, saved by a local woman, local campaigner. She'd even had a major road scheme cancelled and he looked at the old lady as she sat there, nodding quietly as Mrs Armitage gushed about fairies. Eventually a nurse had come in and signalled they mustn't tire her out and Mrs Armitage had gone to use the bathroom. And Chris now sat next to Winifred, her now comfortably ensconced in a large padded chair. And then she leaned in and grabbed his arm, her grip for an old lady amazingly strong. She's the one, isn't she, love? Very posh. Very mad too, ain't she? And she made a gesture of an upturned nose and Chris had laughed. Still, now of about to bring me a cake. Her voice dropped and suddenly her eyes seemed to focus on something very far away you're a good lad she's the boss's wife i can tell i know now listen she suddenly lowered her voice until it was barely a whisper i didn't tell her everything no the campaign in work love years i were at it mind my Geoffrey doing his best we had five kids you know time weren't easy back then but we managed it was after the war you see very difficult it was funny You see, love, I'd read all about them, you know, the fairies in the woods, long before my time, the whole business with that old Sir Arthur and the girls. What silliness, I knew that. You see, I'd gone down to look for them in the woods. Ridiculous, I know. Me, looking for fairies. But you see, I were young, romantic, in love. But you see, they found me, not the other way around. The fairies. Oh yes, it were true. Oh yeah, they were furious with Elsie and Francis. They told me all about those pictures. They had to cover it up. And poor old Sir Arthur as well. Didn't like him though. I'd read all about it. I knew everything, love. But it was their woods. And I had to try and help. So I did. And you know, we actually won. I were amazed. But it was their home. I actually got the place listed by the National Trust. All protected. Couldn't ever be touched again. Me, I did that. And as a reward, they gave me the extra years, you know, like a gift. That was the deal, love, that was the deal. But do me a favour, don't put that in your little story, will you? And then she sat back and closed her eyes. It was warm in the room, and suddenly he flinched as something brushed past his ear. It sounded like a humming, a tiny breeze, a bird or an insect. That was impossible. They were in a care home, double glazed and sealed. And he turned his head round sharply. And then it came again, the humming, first on the right, now on the left. And then he heard a tiny laugh, and then a second in his other ear, something now tickling the hair inside. And there, just out of the corner of his eye, he could see it now, a blur of light, his eyes trying to focus. It was a tiny body, a face, a smile, golden, small silver wings, then another face and then a third, They were moving, and possibly quickly. And then Winifred slowly opened her eyes. It don't hurt to believe in fairies sometimes, love. Trust me now. They know all about you. You just look after your dawn and finish that novel, love. It's going to be brilliant. And you don't worry about Mrs Posh and her blooming husband there. You'll get the promotion. They said they'll see to it. It's all going to work out, love. And she slowly winked at him. Now, don't tell no one, right? There she sat back and fell fast asleep. And Chris suddenly thought of Dawn. Damn, she was always right. Well, as you know, every week there's a brand new story coming along here. And if you'd like to hear more, remember our main site, 3W's thestoryhive.co.uk is available for you. Just pop across to have a listen there. Now, as we always say to you, We are on every social media platform. So give us a like, give us a follow, because it really helps drive things along. And in this day and age, that's what creators like us really need. So we do ask for your help. Anyway, hope the world makes you smile today. Bye now.